The following audio is brought to you by the Davenant Institute. To learn more about or to support the Davenant Institute, go to davenantinstitute.org. Thank you, Brad. Okay, good morning everyone. Um, so the text that was put into the Google Drive for you to read, it's a chapter from the book Personality and Worldview. Uh, so some of you in reading the, the brochure may find that you feel you've been lured here under false pretenses thinking that you're going to hear another talk about Herman Bavink and you love Herman Bavink and that's why you're here. Uh, but it's actually not, so I'm speaking about another Bavink. So, uh, but I make no apologies for that because there is more than one Bavink, and they're all really good in very different ways. So the Bavink I'm speaking about this morning is Johann Hermann Bavink. Uh, so he, is, or he was Hermann's nephew. Um, he's slightly younger. He was born in 1895 and uh, died in 1964, so a much more contemporary Bavink. Um, just to give you, for those of you who don't know him, just to set the text in, in some kind of context, um, he, um, so his father was C.B. Bavink, Cunradus Bernardus, brother of Herman Bavink, Herman Bavink's younger brother. Um, his father was a pastor, also in the Christian Reformed Church in the Netherlands. Um, his father, he was no slouch intellectually, um, but his older brother was Herman Bavink, so we've really forgotten about Bernardus Bavink, but um, he was, in, in his own context, a very noted Augustan enthusiast. Um, and something of a, of a kind of Augustine, it would be patronizing to call him a hobby scholar. Like people don't talk about, you know, have you read C.B. Bavink on, August, on Augustine? Um, so he hasn't had that kind of impact on Augustine studies. But, you know, if you lived in the Netherlands at that point and you were at a conference on Augustine, uh, C.B. Bavink would probably be the speaker or the organizer and you would have read some of his stuff on Augustine. So Herman Bavink is a, uh, was profoundly influenced by Augustine. Some scholars have said that a, a neglect in how we talk about Herman Bavink is that we don't speak enough about him as some kind of a neo-Augustinian. Um, and so Herman is, is really was very into Augustine and deeply influenced by him. His brother Bernard uh, very much so as well. So that's the kind of family background that Johann Herman uh, grew up in with, um, with a very Augustinian dad and a very Augustinian uncle. Uh, so he studied under his uncle at the Free University of Amsterdam, um, he, and he studied alongside, like, he edited a student journal with um, Herman Duyverd, if you know that name, became a very famous neo-Calvinist philosopher. Um, so after he finished his studies in Amsterdam, he then went to Erlangen in Germany. Um, he did a PhD there on... Um, Oh, now this guy's name escapes me, but you guys are, are super Theo nerds, so some of you will know this guy's name. He was a medieval German mystic. Uh, Soto? Is that the right name? S-O-T-O. Um, anyway, J.H. Baving did his PhD on um, the religious psychology of this medieval German mystic. Um, so really interesting figure from the, from the very beginning. So the, the loves that he inherited intellectually from his uncle um, were Augustine and, um, and also he was Reformed as well, but uh, within that context, uh, Reformed theology, Augustine and, and psychology. So Herman Bavink uh, was, 
really prominent in his own context for his work in psychology and um, made all kinds of big claims about how reform theology needs to do much more to reckon with the, the psychology of the human as a, as a religious creature. Um, so J.H. runs with those ideas, very much so, and was also just very philosophically adept and philosophically inclined. So he finishes his PhD, um, and then he ends up um, in what we now will call Indonesia, so on Java, as, in effect, an expat pastor. So at this point, this is the Dutch East Indies, and um, he ended up as, as a pastor in a few congregations there over a few years that were either attended by Dutch um, expats or by uh, East Asians who had kind of westernized, so who went to Dutch-speaking churches and so on. So he was there for a few years doing that. Uh, then he came back to the Netherlands for a while, again to pastor. In the middle of that period, when he was back in the Netherlands, he wrote the book that we have this chapter from today, Personality and Worldview. So that came out in 1928. After that, he then went back to, uh, to Java, but as a very different figure. So to grasp him at this point, the frame of reference that you have to put him in is something like, um, like a neo-Calvinist Hudson Taylor. Okay? So he goes back not to minister to expats, but to be a missionary to locals. So he adopts a local name, which I will not try and pronounce, but he writes books under this Javanese name in Javanese. Um, he started something, I, I normally introduce him by saying he started something like Libri, but we could say that he started something like Davenant in, in a village in, in the rainforest in, in, on Java. So he took this kind of traditional family structure. Um, we have a family house where everything is very hierarchical, where blood is very much thicker than water, so your family ties, family honor are, are all important, and where the structure of the home is also um, structured linguistically, so you have high and low dialects of, of the same local language, and the way that you speak, depending on which dialect, it shows whether you are speaking upwards in the authority chain or downwards. And um, because everything is about actual family ties, um, you expect utter loyalty within this house unit and this culture um, if you are actually part of the family. If you are not, then you're a, a different kind of beast, and you can't expect the same level of loyalty there. So he starts something like, like Davenant in the rainforest, um, something like that anyway, where he buys a, a house and um, creates a family of faith. So anyone who wants to come explore Christianity can come and live there, and the loyalty that you have through blood is through the blood of Christ. Um, and we will all speak a local language together, but it's all the low dialect, because we are equal in Christ, and those hierarchies are gone. So he does this completely fascinating work in, in all kinds of ways, um, and, he, and he looks like a completely different figure to the, the expat pastor. So he does that for a while, and is, and is just a truly fascinating missiologist. And a lot of what he does with missiology is actually promoting Augustine on Java. And his reasons for that are also really interesting, and they come out in this book, Personality and Worldview. It comes out next year, so in English, so you should read it if you, if you like Augustine. Um, so he basically has this view of Western culture that Augustine is the architect of Western culture, and that it's Augustine's world, and we're all just living in it. Um, and that he sees Augustine as someone... Um, so Augustine produced the West, he was not produced by the Christian West. That's how he thinks about Augustine. So Augustine is someone who inhabits um, a, a kind of 
a pagan pre-Christian cosmology who tries to live within that world and then becomes a Christian within it. And through the force of, of his mind, the rigor of his thinking, um, and also the power of his personality and biography, he creates a completely different world around himself that then becomes what we recognize as, as Western culture. But that Western culture is produced by an African um, who overturns a pagan pre-Western world. So Augustine, if you're trying to reach non-Western people, is a very relatable figure, he thinks, because of the kind of, cosmolo the kind of cosmological way of interpreting reality that Augustine overturns in order to develop a theological way of in interpreting reality. So when he goes to Java in the second period, he's like giving lectures all over the place on the life of Augustine. He's basically just translating Augustine's confessions orally into local languages. He's publishing books on the life of Augustine. And um, his, his theory is really that if you want to transform these cultures, this is where he's interesting as a kind of post-colonial neo-Calvinist as well. He's very different to Bavink and, Herman Bavink and Abraham Kuyper on this point. Um, he doesn't think that the West should be exporting Western culture to the Javanese. Instead, you have to export the, the, the root of Western culture rather than the fruit of Western culture, and the root for him is actually the Augustine. So if you plant Augustine in Javanese culture, Javanese soil, then you will actually reform that and Christianize that culture from within. So he has a very interesting missiological approach within the neo-Calvinist tradition. So he, so he was on Java doing this for quite a few years, doing really fascinating stuff, really saw himself as a Calvinist as well in doing all of this. Then eventually he went back to the Netherlands and he spent the rest of his life teaching missiology between the Free University of Amsterdam and the Theological School in Kampen. So he wrote works that some of you might, might have heard of, the introduction to the, the science of missions is probably his best known book because it's been available in English for quite a long time, but he was really a polymath at heart as well and wrote lots of other stuff. He wrote some fascinating work on psychology. Um, he, he, He's a great example of this kind of eclectic tradition where he, he's very happy to absorb insights from Kant, from Jung, and, and use these as ways to explain what Paul is talking about in Romans 1.26, about the suppression of truth and unrighteousness. Um, he's, um, but he, he kind of chews the meat and spits out a lot of the bones there, but he thinks that psychoanalysis, for example, is a very fruitful thing to plunder. Um, so he writes really interesting stuff on um, psychology. He wrote a truly fascinating commentary on the New Testament. Um, that's a commentary written for Eastern and Western peoples. I mean, it's, it's so creative. Um, he wrote lots of stuff like that. He wrote some astounding material on preaching. Um, he was a radio broadcaster throughout most of his life. He traveled in America for a bit. Um, so that's, that's J.H. Bavink, and he lived until um, 1964. Um, it bespeaks the, the, I think, the integrity of, of his life as a missiologist, that his, his son then became a missionary in India. Um, I was given the, 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 the rights to translate this book, permission to translate it by his oldest grandson, who grew up in India as a missionary kid. So you have generations of this carrying through. Uh, so he, he was a, a really remarkable figure, and really, he deserves to be better known. So I, I did a deep dive of his texts um, during lockdown when I was stuck at home without access to another library, but I had lots of his books. And um, I settled on this text as a translation project because this text is right between the first period as an expat pastor, where he's really wrestling with the significance of Augustine, thinking through big issues around worldview, and also trying to interact with big issues in Dutch culture, but also thinking about what he was going to do on Java with a very different approach. So that's a brief life overview of, uh, of him. 
if you don't know him, um, to talk about the book itself, Personality and Worldview. Um, so I come to Davenant with some trepidation as an ambassador for Worldview, um, having heard a lot about the wisdom and Worldview thing, but I actually don't think that, that we're on different pages here. So I'm probably can tell by now I'm not American. Um, I'm also not Dutch. Um, um, but I, the, the, so I move in various different worlds, or cultures with how they think about worldview. Where I am from, worldview is the most un-British concept imaginable. And if you ask people, um, like, what do you think of the idea of worldview? They, they're like, world what? Um, they, they just don't know it. It's not part of our vocabulary. Um, and and I, I've lived in the Netherlands for three years where wereldbeschouwing is a very normal term. It's even baked into the school system that the government funds schools on the basis of their worldview, so there's not just a kind of neutral catch-all schools option that your child just goes to because it's a school. As a parent, you have to choose, well, do I want my child to go to a Catholic school, an atheist school, a Muslim school, a Hindu school, a Baptist school, an evangelical school, a Calvinist school? And the government funds all of these because it recognizes that there's no such thing as neutrality. Um, everyone is somewhere, and everyone has a veiled beschauing, a consideration of the world and how it works. So in Dutch culture, it's very normal. In British culture, it's almost entirely unheard of because most British people just think that the way that the world is is obvious. And if you don't see it like we do, then come on, start thinking properly. I mean, it's, it's just self-evident. Um, so you don't, you don't need a worldview idea if you think that the world is just, the way that the world should be interpreted is, is just pretty obvious if you're a right-thinking person. Um, I, I have never lived in America, but I've spent a good bit of time here and trying to follow intellectual currents here. And I am very aware, having spent a lot of time thinking about the Dutch tradition of worldview, that the American evangelicalization of a continental European worldview tradition has, it has really like, morphed into something very different over here. And I share the critiques that, that have been advanced in Davenant of the kind of Americanization of worldview. I share those very strongly that when you reduce it to a kind of five-point list of things on, 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 a, on a PowerPoint, and if, okay, well, you've assented to one, two, three, four, five, you have a Christian worldview, um, and that's it. Or like, I, they're like YouTube videos that promise to give you a Christian worldview in four minutes. And when you've watched it, you have the worldview. Um, so that is something fundamentally extremely different to what the Dutch neo-Calvinists talk about with worldview, where worldview is actually the, the love of wisdom, and it's something that takes a very, very long time. It's a long journey to go on to try and build up a worldview. Um, so it's an inductive process rather than deductive. It's from the bottom up rather than from the, like the PowerPoint projector down. Um, so, um, so I share the same critiques, I think, uh, from a distance as a non-American, looking in on American worldview, worldviewism. But I guess I'm part of a, a, a trio of... Um, of Bavink scholars who've been working together a bit on just trying to provide resources for the rest of the world and what the Dutch are talking about with worldview. So together with Corey Brock and Grace Utanto, you've heard their names a few times, so two of my former PhD students and uh, two really good friends. Um, so we translated Herman Bavink's book, Christian Worldview, a few years ago, came out with Crossway. And we, so we'd all read that book and thought that this book could really help the I thought as, as someone from the UK, this could really help start a worldview conversation. And, and we also thought for the US, this could really help resource a pretty poor conversation. Um, so th that book is, is Bavink's, some of his best work in what he would call Christian philosophy. So worldview is, it's, we call it for him, like a process of map making about the world. It's learning how to ask the right questions 
with Christian intuitions about you know, what am I? What is the world for? How do I know about thinking and acting? Um, and then as you do that, the map of the world that you build up gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So a worldview is not a pair of blinkers that you sign up to that restricts what you can see. A worldview actually, it's like a lock and key that opens up the world to you. But it takes the whole of your life um, to try and do that. So it's a process of the pursuit of, of godly wisdom and, and how you live. But, and that book is a really useful one. Um, but then when I was doing this deep dive of J.H. Bavinck, I found uh, his follow-up to his uncle's book. Um, which is personality and worldview, uh, because the debates that Herman was a part of, um, and the, actually, he, I think in Christian worldview, Herman is trying to correct some things in Abraham Kuyper. So, you guys will probably know his name. So, Abraham Kuyper was very into the idea of worldview, but within this in house Dutch conversation, Kuyper had a, a really annoying tendency that started to get very annoying culturally, especially for young people, um, to reduce people to their worldviews. Um, so, oh, you are Roman Catholic. Okay, you have a Roman Catholic worldview. Like, and, and that's it, I've got you down. Um, or you, or tell me your worldview and I will tell you who you are. And, um, and I don't really need to get to know you because I've got the, the right label in the right box. And Kuiper did have a tendency towards that. Herman was trying to nuance that with his book, Christian Worldview by saying, well, actually, you know, the, the process of building up a worldview, we need to think about it slightly differently to this. So then J.H. Bavinck's book, Personality and Worldview, is the next stage of this conversation amongst the neo-Calvinists. So um, it was written, in, as I said, in, well, it was written in 1927, came out in 1928, while he was on this year or so back in the Netherlands. The context that it was written in is actually um, that he was invited to give a series of lectures to engineering students okay, at a technical university, um, but this technical university had a reformed engineers society and asked them to give some lectures. Um, and, uh, he, and he, so the big issue that these Christian students, these reformed students were wrestling with was that they'd grown up in this Calvinist context where everything was about worldview and where they saw Kuiper reducing people to their worldviews. And they are growing up in the 20th century, um, these students, and they are at an early stage of what then really just becomes full-on in the 1960s with individualism and so on. So they, you know, you see the early roots of this, and these students are basically saying, we are not our worldviews, we are individuals, we have distinct personalities, you can't box me in with a bunch of bullet points and just with a label. Um, I am myself, and I, I choose my own life, and um, so I have personality, I don't need worldview. Um, and just giving them Herman's book, Christian Worldviews, probably the, the, the conversation needs something more, and that's why he gives these lectures that then become a book on personality and worldview. So the, the lectures were um, they're really interesting because they're like the tip of an iceberg because they're given to non-theologians, uh, non uh, to, to engineering students. So there's, there's a whole, like the rest of the iceberg of learning and theology and philosophy is under the surface, but there's a series of short lectures that are very accessible. That, that advance the conversation and that do so by trying to develop a novel distinction. So that's what I wanted to introduce and then really what I'm hoping to do in guiding the seminar is just to hear some thoughts on his novel distinction because it's novel within the Dutch context and I'm pretty sure that it's, it's a novel attempt within the, well, to introduce it into the English-speaking world as well with how to move this conversation along, um, which is a distinction that he introduces between the idea of worldview uh, so in Dutch, wereldbeschouwing, and what he calls world vision, wereldvisie. 
And the distinction is really a distinction that corresponds to the notions of the objective, a worldview, and the subjective, a world vision. Um, and at its, in its purest form, it's the difference between actually God's view of the world and a human vision in the world. Um, so the idea is, and you'll have seen this if you, if you read the, the seminar text. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands to know who has and who hasn't, but I'm, I will act in good faith that you all have. Um, but uh, so the idea is that worldviews, uh, in one sense, are, they are ubiquitous. They're everywhere. Everyone is influenced by worldviews, but at the same time, almost nobody has a worldview because a worldview in this Dutch neo-Calvinist way of thinking is such a refined thing, such an accomplishment, such a difficult lifelong process of vision to actually ascend to what you could really call a proper worldview. Almost none of us will ever do that and really get to something that is uh, deeply impressive as a well-articulated worldview. So even though we're all influenced by worldviews, worldviews animate societies, and you actually can't make sense of cultures without some kind of notion of worldview, that there is a kind of guiding philosophical system that animates how people have shared instincts together. Um, although world, worldviews influence cultures like that, individuals nonetheless um, very rarely have lives that, and thoughts that correspond to the, the pristine worldview. So instead you see fleeting glimpses of the culture animating worldview in the lives of people who live within that culture. So if you were to talk about Western culture as being profoundly animated by a Christian worldview, you will see traits of this in very um, incoherent ways uh, and different traits within the lives of people who are formed by that culture. But what you don't expect is to find that everyone within that culture, as, as though it's any, in any way meaningful to say, like, you're from here, you have the, the Christian worldview, as though you've got the whole package in any, in a, you know, any kind of coherent way. So instead, what individuals have is far messier. Um, and the point that he's trying to get to in this book with introducing a world vision category is to say that um, we have to have something that's different to worldview in order to make sense of people within a culture and the fact that so few of us ever actually spend our lives pursuing wisdom with that degree of diligence that we would actually arrive at a worldview in a mature sense. So he's trying to scratch an itch that others have tried to scratch um, in different ways. And something that I've loved about this, about the convivium so far is, uh, I've seen this in, in well, Onsi was talking about this yesterday and set a good example of it, uh, and David as well in his paper, um, that so far in the convivium, we've been able to recognize that you can have equivalent concepts that are kind of meeting this, the same perceived need in different systems. Um, like I think the perennial philosophy idea is very similar to the world vision idea. Um, uh, or I think also it's very similar, it meets a similar need to Charles Taylor's idea of the social imaginary. But actually, you, you, just to impose something like a very abstract worldview on everyone and say this is how they live, actually they, they imagine the world. Um, in far more intuitive ways, in precognitive ways, in very underdeveloped ways. Um, so, so the neo-Calvinist conversation needs something like that. It needs it's trying to develop its own perennial philosophy or social imaginary con, uh, concept that accounts for how it really is a disservice to the notion of worldview in its most philosophically refined sense to say that everyone has one of these. Um, instead, what everyone has is something that's just far less developed and far messier 
Um, so J.H. Bavinck is trying to introduce a concept like that to the Dutch neo-Calvinist conversation, because it's kind of there by implication in Herman Bavinck's work in Christian worldview, but he doesn't have a term for this. So he will say, you know, we're all moving, or, or if you pursue a life of the love of wisdom, ultimately then a life towards God, you are moving towards worldview. You're trying to get there. But Bavink, Herman Bavink doesn't have a, a concept to articulate. So what does it mean when you're in step one? Or where do you begin? And what happens if you never move off step one? And if, actually, if you just decide, no, I don't want to live a life prostantheon and a life for the love of wisdom and the love of God. I'll just stay where I am at my starting point. So Herman doesn't give you a concept for the starting point that all humans have. Johann Herman does. And that's the idea of world vision, which you'll have seen in the text. So a world vision is, um, it is your starting point by God's providence in nature and history. It is the, your home coordinates in the world. It is where you're from. It is um, a set of intuitions about the world, a set of presuppositions about the world that um, trickle down into you formatively from the very beginning um, that you get from your parents or from whoever raised you, from your school teachers, from the kind of guiding assumptions that your culture gives you in an unspoken way about how to live within the world and how to make sense of it. So a world vision is all of those things. And they are, uh, I guess an illustration that you could use to import into the book would be it's something like an autopilot setting for life that nobody has even told you you were programmed with. And you don't realize that you run on autopilot. Um, but you do, you know, and it's just constantly guiding you, and you've never realized that there's even a system there at all. Okay? So in order to live as a human, the, 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 whatever environment you're born into actually has to bequeath you with these assumptions, because you, you need something to, to guide you through the world. Um, but it just seems like this is just the way the world is. So insofar as they remain untested, and you never start to ask, so where I'm from has told me to make sense of the world in this way, in this way, in this way. Maybe that's not actually true. I want to think about this. Because you realize it's very subjective. So it's kind of like another illustration that you could use that's not in the book, but um, this is how I felt anyway when I moved to the Netherlands and realized that I was in a very, very different culture all of a sudden. Um, and you start to realize that what seemed obvious, you know, how Scottish people do things is just how people do things, right? And then you realize that Dutch people all react very differently um, and they, they handle themselves differently. And then you actually have to disable your cultural autopilot because otherwise you're just going to crash in this new culture. Um, so then, and then all of a sudden you have to take the wheel and, and learn their assumptions or learn in J.H. Bavinck's terms, their world vision um, and, and try and reprogram your autopilot a bit. Um, so it's kind of like that. So if, you, if you've ever moved cultures in a meaningful way, so not just like as a tourist, but actually relocated to a different culture and tried to learn it, then you, you do realize that your culture does, you know, everyone is from somewhere in a formative way. So the world vision idea is, is an attempt to put into conceptual, it's a conceptual interpretation of that experience. Um, so in, it's inherently a good thing because it's by God's providence that you're from somewhere and, um, and you're, you're from a community that does give you um, one way to live within the world. And that way is livable to a degree. Otherwise, your community wouldn't sustain it and wouldn't uh, kind of uh, feed you with this growing up. Um, but it's, it's a one-dimensional perspective that may contain a great deal of truth, but it doesn't ask you to test it in and of itself because it's an autopilot. 
because these are assumptions. And that, for J.H. Bavink, is not a worldview. So culture doesn't give you a worldview, even if the culture is animated by a worldview, because worldview has to be tested, has to be, a sub has to be subject to a process of refinement. But a world vision is the starting point, and everybody has one. And as such, it's a good thing. So you can't look down on anyone because of where they're from. That's by God's providence that you are from where you're from. And God in his providence has put you there in order that you will be refined from there and sanctified, actually. Um, so this, as a starting point, it's good because it's a set of home coordinates. But for J.H. Bavink, actually, uh, you know, he says, at one level, everyone, he starts off by saying everyone has a worldview. You see this in this chapter. But then he refines it to say, actually, almost no one has a worldview. Everyone has a world vision. And most people never take a single step towards worldview, and they live within their world visions. Um, again, to use like a, a more contemporary illustration, it's kind of like the, in the matrix. Um, most people live within the matrix without ever asking even what is the matrix. <laughs> and even some people, when they get out of the matrix, decide, you know what, I, I'd rather that I'd never been taken out of it. I wish that I could have carried on living as though the matrix is true. Okay? So that's actually, for J.H. Bavink, that idea is, is how most people live. Like Isaiah's language, nobody stops to think. Um, so people are, because a, because a world vision is livable to a degree, um, you know, you can carry on an autopilot forever without actually asking whether you're lost. It's just carrying you. Um, most people don't make, take a single step towards pursuing a world view with with a really earnest desire for truth, which for him is, is ultimately is a desire for God. So it's the starting point, but it, and it's a home starting point that can become a prison and actually is for most people. Um, so for him then, the, the process of the love of wisdom in the first place is just recognizing I have a world vision and I don't have a worldview. And in order to love wisdom, I have to start putting the, all of the as those that my culture asks me to assume for every moment of every day. I have to put them to the test and um, then move from that slowly towards, um, towards a world view. Um, I, I said at the beginning that he's also really deeply Augustinian as well. And, that you even, and it's part of why I gave you chapter one of this book. Um, because he, he takes chapter one to a very Augustinian conclusion. So he's... He's an Augustinian neo-Calvinist, so he, he is deeply suspicious of the sinfulness of the human heart. And that also feeds into how he talks about worldview building. So for him, um, you know, the, the paradox of the confessions is everywhere in J.H. Bavink's psychological writings. So every human life is constantly trying to look for and not look for God you're always stretching out one of your hands towards God whilst with the other hand smothering his mouth so he will not speak. You're always trying to climb to the top of the mountain to find God and then you swerve to evade him at the very last step. Um, and worldview building all does that as well. So for him, every human worldview has to be viewed with the reality of sin in mind, that it's also always both a seeking for God and a not seeking God. So he's a, he really believes in the importance of worldview, but also thinks that because of sin, you have to temper the, the love of wisdom with a recognition of um, being wise about your sin and therefore a bit suspicious about your own worldview building or suspicious of yourself as the one who is building it. So that's the kind of how the idea works. And you'll have seen that if you read the text, this difference between worldview and world vision. Um, 
he is, as he develops the idea in this book, he's aware that it's a new term. So you can do like big data mining of Dutch texts and words that occur in the, in the 19th century, the 20th century. Um, so he, for him, this is a novel term um, in his context. There are a couple of Dutch texts in the decades before this that happen to mention the world. Veiled Fisi, world vision, but it's, it's accidental. It's not related. It's just someone who thinks they've made up a new word and there's no connection. Um, so it's, it's a new idea conceptually in the tradition for him. So he's being creative. It's also a bit cumbersome. Like if you try and like if you had to translate this into Spanish or Portuguese or something like that, where there are equivalent words for worldview are uh, like uh, vision in effect, like fisao, I, I can't pronounce it, but um, then it, it's a very difficult text to translate, or it's a term that's awkward to render in a lot of other languages. Um, so he's not um, he's willing to hold the, to the term a bit loosely in the book because it's rhetorical actually at the beginning. And then once he has shown you that there is a difference between a proper, truly objective worldview and actually where God is the only one who has, who has an actually objective view of the world, a wise view of the world. And as humans, we're all just trying to, well, we should be trying to move towards that with a recognition of our own sinfulness. Um, once he has established that that is what a true worldview is and none of us has it, only God truly has it, but we're all shaped by it worldviews. And actually what we start off with is a, is a different concept, a world vision. And he's given you that slightly awkward term to work with. Once that's lodged in your mind as the reader, he basically drops it and substitutes it instead for the term mentality. So instead of talking to people in ways that assume they'll have a worldview, instead he says, well, actually, the way to talk to people is that everyone has a mentality. And that's a much easier term for people to work with. And you have a mentality that is shaped by where you're from. Um, and that is the thing that you need to put to the test in order to move towards wisdom slash worldview. Um, so he, he's not, so I'm, I'm curious to know what people here think of it, having read the text, um, as something equivalent to perennial philosophy, or if you've read Charles Taylor, The Social Imaginary. Um, he himself, and also when you read his later works, I've actually only found one text by J.H. after this book where he retains the term world vision um, and it's a text where someone asks him a question that assumes that all people have a worldview and he offers a corrective um, where he says well actually no you're not talking about worldview you should really use the idea of world vision so he he does keep it but he doesn't write about it a lot actually afterwards so it's an experiment for him um, and trying to again meet a need that uh, I think it's come across actually in quite a few of the different contributions here so I'm very curious to know what what you think about world vision in the first place. But one thing, I mean, part of why I assigned this text for this conference on Christianity and philosophy is that one of the functions of the world vision idea for him is that it's a tool for Christian discrimination, uh, or, or, or the exercise of Christian discretion, I should say, when evaluating worldviews or philosophies. So um, for him, so he's part of this tradition that I was trying to sketch out yesterday, where the neo-Calvinists think about philosophy in terms of world world puzzles, the term he uses in this text, or world problems, that there are all these riddles of our existence that seem paradoxical. Uh, and the best philosophies always find the, the most compelling ways to retain those paradoxes, like causality and free will, or optimism or pessimism, or um, um, you know, teleology, or th those kinds of questions. So for him, the very best philosophies are always the ones that have the most thoughtful ways to retain the paradoxes. And he thinks that ultimately Christianity itself is, is a religion that's founded on paradox and that sees paradox as a good thing. 
Um, but the worst philosophies for him are the ones that um, reduce necessary paradoxes and become one-sided. Um, so the world vision idea then becomes a tool, uh, a diagnostic tool for him in assessing philosophies. And the classic example for him is empiricism. Uh, so in the book, there's a chapter on em empiricism where um, you know, people have this one insight and they kind of get drunk on the power of the insight. It's explanatory power, it just seems limitless. And then all of a sudden, everything is, is all about empiricism. And he thinks that that's a philosophy that is not, that can't sustain the livability of life. Uh, it's just too one-sided and it collapses a paradox. So he says that empiricism actually failed the, the, the test of trying to leave behind being a world vision. It's still just a single insight, it's one dimensional, and therefore it never earned the right to be considered a world view. There are other philosophical schools where he does think that they ascended high enough that you can call them worldviews. Uh, so, I mean, for him, like, I mean, Kant is, is, is his favorite philosopher. He doesn't read him uncritically, but he thinks that Kant has the most profound effort to try and um, maintain paradoxes. And he's critical of lots of how Kant tries to do that, but he really appreciates the effort. Um, I mean, for him, uh, um, the world vision, worldview distinction is just very important in being a tool uh, in thinking through which attempts to develop philosophical systems are, are better than others. So he's introducing it there. So I'm curious again to know um, uh, yeah, what people in the room think about that. Uh, but I probably said enough to introduce the text at this stage. So I, I'm assuming that at least some of you have read it. Um, and I'm, I'm yeah, very happy to have a conversation around it. Um, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Okay. No, things that we take onto ourselves is then those things become buffered, right? They become a line that, that we use to, to hold things out and, and his, his discussion is more about becoming porous again. Is, is that where he's going with all of that? Um... I'm also happy to defer to Greg on this because he, he's, he's done really good work on Taylor and I'm really happy to learn with the group. I also think that Herman Bavinck is a really interesting um, person to set alongside Charles Taylor on the, on the buffered and porous self, but um, because he, he has very similar insights to Charles Taylor on like, 19th century Dutch people in his own context uh, who had what he saw as a, something like a buffered self, which then closes them off to, to God. Um, uh, yeah, it's a good question. Yeah, I, I, mean, I agree with Greg's take on it, I think. Yeah, I, James, I had two questions. That, that was very helpful. Um, I looked forward to this book coming out. Um, on the, on the, the use of the word worldview, and I, I think we've 
even at this conference, we've talked about they're just different connotations, you know? Mm -hmm. And that the distinction that, that uh, JH is making between world vision and world view, that's very helpful. Um, and the, I don't see a page number here, so my question, that's a setup for my question, yeah. but it's the, one, it's the one where it's the paragraph starts like this. The question becomes more difficult when we notice the number of worldviews and so forth. And then he lists um, skeptic, skepticism, positivism, empiricism, rationalism, realism, idealism, and so forth. Yeah. And I assume that because those are in parentheses and not brackets, that those, that's J.H. That's original. So, okay. so he, he thinks that, uh, as did Herman and as did Stakety, so they're all just in a, a common line here, that we, we always do have to consider um, philosophy in creaturely terms. It happens within a finite environment and because it's not consideration of God. It's not consideration of something infinite. Um, philosophy, philosophical investigation always presents you with a, ultimately quite a limited number of finite um, ways to configure these world problems the paradoxes of existence. So there's not a, an unending list of configurations. Or, or, so there's a vast number of subtle, subtly different iterations of how you can answer those questions. But actually he thinks that you can handle philosophy through um, quite a, like a, a small number of types. Yeah. Um, so, and that's part of how he justifies how he writes the, the book as he does, um, that he can't write about every single philosophy, but he can write about the core, the, like the building blocks that are arranged in a different set of ways, but they're the same building blocks because their attempts to answer the same questions throughout. So, th so those are, are original, actually. So, he, yeah, yeah, so, okay, good. That's uh, helpful. Um, so my, my question goes to the way that he's using the, the word worldview here. Mm. And I read that paragraph, and I'm thinking, oh, he's just using that in the way that, say, I would or somebody else would say, philosophical system. Yeah, utterly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so they're synonymous in this yeah. in that tradition. Right. Yeah. So, and then that leads me to another question, which may be more difficult to answer, is the way that Kant used German Weltanschauung, which could be, yeah, could be translated worldview but it could be translated world intuition, mm. world opinion. Yeah. See? So that's that's fuzzy. Yeah. And, but, so it's, as I understand it, Kant is using it, world, Weltanschauung, as it pertains to the individual, mm. and what you call American worldviewism, mm. it's gone from idealism to ideolo ideology. Mm. And so they aren't, they aren't the same thing. It's yeah. exactly the same. And I've onto something. Yeah, so maybe. I mean, I think what I've been trying to do, along with Corey and Gray, in, in our role in this bigger conversation, is to, to take the conversation away from being um, a bit unfocused as a cultural conversation, like a word that floats around, and anyone who happens to use the same term, worldview, then all kind of gets labeled together. That's just that's not very helpful because the people who have advanced uses of this word are all just very distinct. And even when you get into the, the fine grain of the Dutch neo-Calvinist tradition, Kuiper Hermann Bavink and Johann Hermann Bavink all have significantly different nuances 
uh, on how to use the term worldview, how to deploy it, what the practice of the term looks like. It's their part of a conversation anyway, where, I mean, Herman is the kind of bridge between the two. But then if you had to compare Kuiper and Johann Herman, you're also talking about two quite distinct figures. So we're, we're trying to provide a window into the conversation where um, we can start to help people think about the use of words more intelligently in the first place in a, in a broader cultural conversation. Um, so, I mean, J.H.'s take on Kant, uh, he, he doesn't wed himself to Weltanschauung. Uh, um, he, but he really appreciates Kant's introduction of the term, but he doesn't, um, he doesn't actually spend too much time trying to... I, either sketch out his proximity or his distance from Kant on the term. So Kant's significance in the worldview conversation for J.H. is, and this is a really interesting insight into how to read um, what makes great philosophical insights great, which is that, um, so great developments in philosophy for J.H. are, like, they're not like things that are just created ex nihilo. Um, they are, ways of putting into words and concepts, things that we have all been wrestling with, um, but without having good terms or concepts, and therefore we didn't realize that we were wrestling with these issues. Um, so the idea for, for him is that people were developing what you could call worldview, you're wrestling with the challenge of trying to develop it for a very, very long time. He doesn't think they can't invented worldview, but can't give, give, um, give us a very helpful term um, that then goes viral because it expresses, it scratches a very long-standing human itch. So um, he kind of links himself to Kent in that way, but he's actually just not very interested in needing to either locate like proximity or distance. Um, but maybe that just reflects what's happening in his own day as well, in his own, his own immediate context. Um, yeah, sorry. Um, so, um, so for him, the, so once you recognize that you need to, to put the way that your community has told you to interpret the world to the test, um, and not just to assume, um, you know, not to live by untested assumptions, once you actually decide to test them out, and then that's already a step of wisdom because it's a moment of realization actually about who you are and who God is, that, that you're a human, that you're subjective, that you're finite, and that God is infinite, and, um, and, and that God's knowledge and wisdom um, are, are the truth, and they're, they're truly objective. Um, so once you recognize that you don't have that, and you, you have this realization that you're, that you're a creature, and that you want to move towards God and growing in wisdom, for him then, with, with the way that he gives these ideas of world view and world vision being different, like to step forward towards world view or to step forward towards having what he would call a philosophical system that you've actually tested out or you know, to step forward to a life of wisdom, those are all just different ways of saying the same thing for him. So he, I think he, he means something kind of distinct by it. Um, but you, for him, the, the idea of trying to... Like, develop a worldview is 
it's a really difficult thing. I mean, it's the task of your whole life, and you could spend your whole life trying to grow um, uh, in, in wisdom or trying to develop a view of the world that's um, that's um, yeah that, that that is progressing towards God's view of things, but then always recognizing that recognizing your your humanity as well in that. Um, the way that he writes on this is, is very rich in illustration throughout. And there's one illustration that's, that you have at a few points in this text. And it's the illustration that he uses of a, like a crumpled ball of paper. Um, so he'll, he'll use the image of things being crumpled up a lot. And for him, the difference between a world view and a world vision would be like, like if you had a map of the world that was exceptionally detailed and useful to navigate everything, and it's, you know, it's made of paper and you scrunch the whole thing up into a tight ball that feels very manageable in your hand and you feel confident at holding this thing. Um, and what's on the outer side of this crumpled up map, like it has some places, it has some names, and you, know, you can use it for very limited navigation. But if that's all you've got to go by, you might not try and navigate very far. You just stay where you are. But you've got, you've got a map, right? You've got this thing and it's very manageable in your hand. Um, that that's a world vision, okay? A, a very crumpled set of a very crumpled perennial philosophy, you could say. Okay, a very crumpled set of intuitions that are just accepted by blind faith from your community that this is just how I will live, the way I've been taught to intuit the world. Um, the process of moving from that crumpled up ball of paper map to what he calls a worldview or a philosophical system or a life of wisdom is actually the process of uncrumpling the ball and realizing, whoa, there's this whole map of wisdom here um, before God. And then you navigate very differently when you realize that there's actually a lot more paper here. There's a lot more surface to read than I could see just on the edge of the crumpled up ball. I find that a really helpful illustration. Uh, yeah, yeah. There was a question over here. Go right ahead. Thanks. Um, so I really like this world vision, world view distinction, and I like also that he's subtle even within that. So uh, you know, at the end, he... he says, you know, even in the process of worldview, you're going towards God, but you're pushing him away, as you said. So my question is, is it always, so presumably there are better and worse worldviews, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and presumably then there are also better and worse world visions, right? Uh, like, I mean, if you if you come from a real Christian home who taught you a yeah. more, more Christian world vision, that's what yeah. So is the process, it sounds like, based on what you're saying, the answer is yes, but to my question, is the process of going from world vision to worldview always a good thing, right? So, so I can imagine on one hand, right, uh, it, a worldview which is not a godly worldview, yeah. um, but it is, it is an impressive, like, pretty consistent yeah. world system, could could be worse because you're sort of hardened into it than have to yeah. stay in the world vision state. And likewise, if you're if you're raised in a sort of strong conservative Christian home uh, that sort of taught you this Christ, very Christian world vision, but you just you know you're not mm. particularly uh, you know intellectually curious or whatever. You always stayed there. Yeah. Is that always is that worse for the you know is it, is it, are you always sort of an, uh, an immature Christian if you mm. don't seek uh, mm. a worldview? Yeah, well, that's a terrific question. So if you begin with a a world vision where the intuitions that seep into you are all shaped by a, a Christian worldview, but you never put it to the test. Um, would it be better to stay there than, let's say, you put those to the test and you end up like a radical atheist? <laughs> right. Would that, would that, that would, would presumably be worse. Hey. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, so that's a great question. It's not a question that he tackles in the book, actually. So I, I'm re that's part of why I'm here, to put these ideas out, to be challenged to think about the book and questions like this. 
so there's something um, for him, I think, and it's a very Augustinian intuition again, there's something deeply idolatrous about the, the unwillingness to put any world vision to the test because it's subjective and creaturely. And if you refuse to leave it behind for him, then you have made it into an idol. So it's conceivable for him that you could take a Christian world vision and you refuse to ask, is this actually the truth? And in doing that, then you reject the um, pilgrimage towards the creator in the first place. So it, it could still be, an, in fact, it is an idol for him if, if you refuse to put it, its truth claims to the test. Um, and for him, there's also something, so there's something that's very noble about all worldview building. Strikingly, and the people he praises for this, I mean, he praises Confucius. He's a big fan of Descartes. Uh, Ansi will, will like it. Um, uh, Lao, Lao Tzu, um, um, Kant, Hegel, like he's got this small constellation of people and, and um, he, he really praises them effusively for the scale of their achievement because even though he, he doesn't end up where any of them end up, they have pursued truth and virtue with, with the whole of their lives and with so much rigor. So for him, that's, that's an inherently noble thing. And he, so he doesn't kind of countenance directly. Would it have been better just to, to, to stay someone with a Christian world vision that you've never actually put to the test and asked, is God really, must I put my faith in this God um, or in this gospel? Or would it be, be you know, better to stay there than to end up like, becoming a Confucian? Like, it's not the question he asks, but Confucius deserves um, great respect for, for the scale of what he put his life towards. But at the same time, like, Confucius is an idolater. Um, but we're, but we're all, for him, idolaters in how we build up our, our worldviews. Um, but it's still a necessary path to go along uh, in order to, to, to approach God. So that's, that's a great question. Yes? James, thank you. Um, you mentioned your movement from Scotland to, to the Netherlands and that you had to understand they had a different place to start from. Hmm. How, did, how do you suppose that being a Dutch affected both uh, Abek and J.H. Yeah. Yeah, so again, a great question. So um, part of how I got interested in the Dutch tradition in the first place as a you know, Scottish Presbyterian was when I started to read Herman Bavink, I started to ask, why didn't we produce our own Herman Bavink? Um, and then just spent years reading all of these sources and trying to understand the like the philosophical, cultural history also that was the soil in which these people grew. Um, and I think part of the answer to that question is actually in this book and takes us back to Descartes again. Um, so the, these Dutch Reformed guys come from a philosophical tradition that's very different to the, like the British philosophical tradition that's the backdrop to how I grew up and my tradition, which didn't produce worldview thinking and which generally does produce people who really do believe that the way they view the world is just obvious. Um, so in British culture, there, there is now some searching for a worldview concept that has come about actually through um, how British culture is now much more diverse um, 
through our colonial history, so we have um, far more people now whose cultural backgrounds are, are not in the West at all, but they, you know, their, their cultural backgrounds are in former colonies. And for them, uh, the, the, the British way to view the world is not obvious. It's not self-evident. Um, and you know, if you're a school teacher and you know, you're, um, you're like white British by background and you teach in a school where the, the, the school pupils are, are all, uh, like their, their backgrounds are all in Pakistan, for example, the, the way that you've been taught to view the world as the teacher is just obvious and self-evident and nobody has ever questioned it. It's, like that, it's not very obvious anymore when like, none of the pupils come from backgrounds where, like, um, where the, way, the way they view things is, is obvious. So I, I never heard the word worldview once in my entire schooling growing up in the UK. Um, but now you do have religious worldview lessons that in, where worldview is a concept that's being turned to to try and make sense of the fact that the ideas that we thought were common and sensical aren't actually common and sensical to everyone in the world. So the end of uh, the colonial era has actually shifted this a bit and people are starting to explore the idea of worldview. Um, but it's a very foreign word for us still. And people don't really know what they mean by it in British culture. It's quite rare. Um, but the Dutch philosophical background is just quite different because they're shaped by a philosophical tradition where um, you know, Kant makes them aware that people have arbitrary presuppositions and actually you need those to live or they have like Descartes in the background telling them that even the things that are, seem most foundational to how you exist as a human being have to be subject to radical doubt and questioning. You can't just treat them as self-evident. Um, so they have that kind of background anyway um, in terms of the philosophical terrain and that makes them just far more receptive to the idea. Like worldview implies worldviews. You know, that if you have a worldview, that someone else will have a different worldview, and therefore, well, why, why don't they think like I do? Are they just idiots, or is, is this a bit more complex than that? So the philosophical background is different, but I think that the theological background that they grew up in is different as well, that makes them much more receptive to their, their own worldview tradition. Um, so, um, you know, so the Dutch Reformed tradition um, uses the Heidelberg Catechism, um, it's a really beautiful catechism of the Christian faith, and what's really interesting with the Heidelberg Catechism is that it treats the Christian faith as compellingly true, but never as like, obviously true to everyone. So the Heidelberg Catechism assumes that all knowledge, Christian and unbelieving, is rooted in faith, and um, that, it, that it's not just obvious or self-evident. So it's a very un-British catechism as well, I think. Um, so they, they grew up in that kind of tradition where, again, you know, the Heidelberg Catechism you can see it in various points that it's very clear in recognizing that Christianity is the truth and is, is so deeply compelling, but there are lots of complex theological reasons for why it won't be obviously so to, to some in this world, and you have to be able to articulate your Christian faith in that sense. So that also, I think, makes like the, the Heidelberg Catechism's influence, I think, makes people very receptive to worldview uh, or to develop their own kind of worldview concepts. Yeah, and indeed, indeed. So they kind of see him as part of the one of their own, really. Yeah. Um, see a few hands, but uh, yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm not much of an academic. Uh, I try and take things and put them in analogies. I understand. I love what you said about the necessary paradoxes, right? Because mm -hmm. on one hand, we're all universally in brother of Christ, and the other hand, each of, each of us is saved individually, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's this paradox that exists within reality itself that 
yeah. diminish it, just diminish reality. On the other hand, like I know in a sports analogy, um, testing yourself is how you get stronger, mm -hmm. right? You, you, you lift weights, you run, those things make you stronger, right? Yeah. But if I brought you in and I put you on a bench press and I put 400 pounds in the bar, I might be able to lift it, but you'll injure yourself. Right? Well, so that's an untested assumption. So, so you, you need to leave your world vision behind, my friend. But, but you would find that you're correct, but you, you have to test it. Yeah, so there are a few ways that he approaches this. Um, so one, so I mentioned it um, in the Q&A after Jordan's paper last night. So he has a lot of confidence in the human collective um, and in, in the nature of human life as basically a quality control process for all philosophical systems. So life itself will always expand and overcome philosophical systems that, that don't match life. So, and, and that's why uh, philosophical systems that don't do a good job of dealing with the paradoxes that life needs are things that life will always, he, he uses, he uses what, an illustration in the book of, um, of, of life as it's like a tree and um, if you put a really small fence around it, like the fence might seem really strong and you might think, wow, what a glorious fence we've constructed. But let that tree grow for long enough and the tree will definitely knock it down and then you'll just have the, the pieces of the fence on the ground. Um, so life outgrows uh, worldview uh, world or world visions or philosophical systems that are too reductive in the first place. And he, and he really, he believes in, he's very suspicious of, of you know, the, of the human heart because of sin, but he also recognizes that humans live and, and that they're always wrestling with, just because philosophy is this kind of anthropogenic inquiry. So we're always trying to live, and by trying to live, we're trying to deal with these world problems. Um, so you can just look through the history of, of humanity to see which philosophies have longevity and which you know, spring up for a season. Like, I mean, empiricism for him is his go-to, like just terrible so, philosophy. So you can look at that and see that, okay, for a century, you know, like the English were very empiricist driven and they all thought it was great, but actually like you, you go to other parts of the world and empiricism collapsed and now it's just like a kind of niche thing for the philosophically naive. But there are other philosophies that last a really long time so that are so expansive. I wish Jordan was here. Mm. This is like, you know, should we keep people away from modern mm. metaphysics until we've had a hundred years to test whether or not Yeah, good question. I mean, like, yeah. Does yeah. Make sense? yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so for him, but then the, I guess the way that he approaches, approaches it is to say that it's, it's a bit naive to think that like, what's old is somehow working with a different set of building blocks to what's new. Like, so it's a massive overstatement of the finitude of 
the task of philosophy for J.H. Bavinck to think that somehow the modern is like a completely different species. In fact, it's still just an attempt to configure the same problems or the same aspect of the riddles of existence in a, in a different way, but it, it has to work with the same materials. So for him, then, you can, you can continue to use the much longer philosophical uh, quality control process to be you know, wise and judicious about assessing modern philosophy. Oh, but I was going to say the one other thing, actually, because I mentioned there are a couple of ways he approaches the quality control process. So one is that he has a lot of confidence in life to knock down bad philosophical systems or restrictive, reductive ones. But the other is, and I should mention this, that, um, that for him, the, the gospel is a worldview unto itself. So how he presents it. So the gospel relates to us as individuals in relation to our specific home coordinates in life to our world visions and it and it's the thing that puts um, that you that you need to use to put your world vision to the test and it kind of dismantles and knocks down where you're from because it puts everything to the test and then it rebuilds you for, in his way of thinking as kind of the, the best version the Christian version of or the sanctified version of where you're from and who you should be. So this is part of his missiological approach as well that I think then, why well, I think this book's so interesting because this is just before he goes back to Java and he doesn't want to export Western culture. He wants to help people be the, the, the sanctified versions of who they are and where they're from. So for him then the gospel becomes something that re, reconfigures the world visions that he will find in Java. Um, so that the, the, there's a really strong gospel element where it is... It's a, a world view unto itself. Because um, I think right now yeah. it's like we need to give them our like PowerPoint because they already have a worldview, and so it's just like exchanging this one for this one. Mm. But if they don't have one, it's less of an emergency yeah. that they get the whole system now. Yeah. So the book does end with emergency, and that the way that he ends the last chapter is to say that Western culture is now at a critical point where. So he thinks that. Worldviews um, shape, you know, they're, they're, the, they're the, the fabric of a, of a civilization and they're powerful enough that, that we go on living on borrowed capital from the worldview that created our culture. Uh, we live on that borrowed capital for ages without realizing even that that's where, like, that's what sustains our existence. And then we keep on doing that whilst thinking that our life is sustained by other worldviews that actually have lo no life-giving power. So we're always um, borrowing from Christianity unconsciously because he says our hearts are so unconsciously Christian in the West. Um, so it, that's, and for him, that's like 20th century Western culture. Um, it needs Christianity in order to carry, carry on with the kind of values that it doesn't want to give up. Um, but it's always, um, it aligns itself with something that is totally bankrupt. Um, but he says, so he says that can go on for a really long time that a culture is sustained by Christianity 
whilst thinking that it hates Christianity. But eventually the borrowed capital dries up. And then he's writing this in 1928, looking, you know, having been through World War I, looking at what might come in World War II, and you have Nietzsche and atheism and, and all that, that kind of stuff. And um, so the book does end with an emergency, actually, to say that the great crisis of Western culture is that it no longer believes in worldview. And it doesn't, but it doesn't realize the importance of worldview. For, um, and, then, and then what he's trying to, I guess the point that he's trying to make is, it's not a book about evangelism in any direct sense. The point that he's trying to make at the end of the book to these students who think, I can give up on this idea because I've got personality and individuality. The point that he's trying to make is that, um, okay, so what's personality shaped by? And it's a paradox again. You know, there's the freedom of your human agency and, and so on, and that's real. And he doesn't want to give up on that. But at the same time, so much of the book is focused around saying, okay, so you're a Western person. Um, tell me why you hold certain views about like the, like, the liberty of the individual. Um, that if you go to East Asia and to a Confucian culture that isn't shaped by Christianity, their personalities all seem in, to operate in a similar kind of way to say something that is the opposite of what you think. So it's not obvious. It's shaped by something. So what was it shaped by? So he's telling these students, you are shaped by Christianity. And even though it's a very, uh, like, we only see moments of how it shapes you as an individual. And it might be different aspects of Christianity that shape 10 different Western people. So it's not a coherent package. Um, it's nonetheless the same thing that, that, um, that we see, like, momentary reflections of Christianity. Uh, we, we see that in them. And he's trying to get them to see, like, this is all from a Christian worldview. And that's why, you know, you are Western people. And you have to accept that the whole world isn't like the West. And not all people are like Westerners, and that's from somewhere. And if you truly give up on that, because you think, well, I've got my individuality, and I choose what I'm going to be, um, really, you're not as free as that, even though you are free. Like, you're also part of something. Um, so that, I think that's what he's trying to accomplish in the book. I think it, it does, though. It has, it has really useful evangelistic um, applications. I think it really does in helping people, um, well, in addressing everyone as having a mentality, so the world vision idea, I mean, I spent quite a long time inducting you and what he means by it. And he does that in the book as well. But once he thinks you're on board, then he's like, okay, let's shift it to mentality. And let's ask people, hey, do you recognize that you have a mentality? Do you recognize that someone from Saudi Arabia also has a mentality? Why don't you have the same mentality? What were those factors shaped by? And yet you're the one who's, you know, it both forms you and you form it, you know, because that's being human. Um, so let's think about that. And then that, I think that has a tremendous, at least in a secular kind of Western culture, that's very helpful. At least I find it helpful in a Scottish context where the average um, like Scottish person just thinks that this is all self-evident and the way to live life is obvious and they've never even questioned whether they have a mentality. Um, and if they don't believe the gospel and uh, they think that's a self-evident, obvious thing too, it's very helpful to pull the rug out from under their feet and say, you know, you're from somewhere. You didn't choose all of this. That you're shaped by something. You owe, you owe more than you think to Christianity, um, but also the way that you view the, the way that you view all of this, or your vision of it, is not um, shared by everyone in the whole world. You're just kind of naive. So I'll open your eyes a bit for you, and let's think about the gospel together. So I think it's a, a useful preparatory role. Yeah. 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 Yes. Also, in the Scottish context, uh, fascinating the difference between the different cultures. Um, James Orr, I started reading his book a few years ago, and this uh, quick search uh, says he was the first.
trying to trace the, the history of our uh, American uh, idea of worldview. So I was interested in if you get, have more influence over here and not in Scotland. Um, but it seems like this would be a good paper in the spirit of free exchange of ideas. You all can have this for free. But uh, you just trace you know, what the, the, the differences between the Dutch, mm. the Scottish, and the American uh, idea of worldview. Um, so he was part of the conversation with Bavink, and they corresponded. Um, Bavink reviewed his work, and, and that was the first stuff that Bavink wrote about worldview, as far as I'm aware, was his review of James Orr. Um, and Bavink doesn't really write about worldview much again until like, after the death of Nietzsche, when it becomes a much more useful and important concept. So he, he's influenced by Orr, um, but I think that through that link, Orr was much more influential in the Netherlands than he was in Scotland. Um, yeah, on that front. So he's a, a bit of a forgotten figure in Scotland. Yeah. Um, but he, has, he had all of his... That's thing. So a, a life tip for anyone who's going to write lots of manuscripts and wants them to have some impact posthumously, don't have them all burned before you die. So James Orr did that, and then no one in Scotland engages with Orr, because where's the archive? Um, Herman Bavinck didn't do that, and we have this humongous Bavinck archive, and we're having this conversation right now. So... Yeah, uh, David. Yeah. All right, so I have this question. It's kind of, I guess it's kind of genealogically, but it's a genealogical question, you might say, of ideas. Uh, it does, I think, have an impact on what's going on here. Uh, so you said he was trained in Germany at, at one point, mm -hmm. uh, and then this book came out in 1927, right? 28 for the book, but the lectures were 27. Yeah. Um, which is just, it, it's, it, for me, that's just striking. Uh, because Martin Heidegger's book, Being a Time, was published in 1927. He was working on it uh, in the years preceding that, from 1915 to 23 at Freiburg, and then from 1923 to 26 at Mar uh, Marburg. And his concept, like the concept you just used to describe world vision, is almost exactly the same concept that we find in Being a Time that Heidegger calls world, yeah. or worldhood, as this as this kind of uh, structure of interpretation of the world that you are given or you're thrown into mm. that you may just not even be aware of, but it's how you are living and interpreting the world around you. Yeah. Is there, do you know of any cross-pollination or anything like that that may have been going on? Wow. I, so he doesn't cite Heidegger at, at any points in the book. Um, it, it, it wouldn't surprise me at all if, if he had read him, for example, just because he, he was very erudite. Yeah. You know where uh, Germany studied? Erlangen. So, not in the same place, obviously. Yeah. Um, but then, while Heidegger was working on that stuff, J.H. was this expat pastor in Indonesia. So, that might pose a problem in yeah. trying to find whether he you know, would it have been easy to access Heidegger's books. I'm not sure. Uh, but he doesn't interact with them directly. But you know, as, as part of the spirit of this convivium, again, it's a, just a great example of common itches, and different people scratch them in slightly different ways. But there's something very intellectually fruitful about trying to see how others solve similar problems, and um, and really benefiting from lining them up for a conversation rather than being like, hey, you know, my guy's J.H. Bavink, and he said world vision, and Heidegger said world, so you know, like, let's cancel each other out and have a fight. Um, that, that's just not helpful at all, whereas this is much more generative. So, yeah, I'll go in and revisit Heidegger, actually. That's a very helpful point. Yeah. Um, yes, Chris. Um, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but I think it's Heidegger. 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 Heid
So you, I think you referenced this earlier, but why, I guess, why isn't it called personality and culture and poetry? Because it seems that, like, you would have at least been aware that, you know, culture has just as strong influence on your constraints of what you're able to even, like, like what, what's even plausible for you. Mm. Yeah, so I, mean, I guess he, he titled the book Personality and Worldview because just, those were the two things in the cultural conversation that were set up as uh, you know, an either or. So, I mean, the, the question that people were asking was personality or worldview. So the title of the book in saying personality and is itself a, like a critique of the conversation and a reframing of it. Um, so, I mean, I haven't really said anything about how he understood personality in the book. So you can just read it when it comes out next year, I guess, um, to get to that. But the question for him about personality in relation to culture is that, um, so if you think of world vision and world view, um, world vision is, is so deeply shaped by culture. So you're, you're, born as the, you're born into being the product of a certain culture, cultural milieu. Um, and if you remain there, then that's you know, the limit of your personality, the shape of it, but it's from somewhere. So it's naive to think, um, you know, I'm not shaped by anything else. I'm a, my, I'm a free individual human agent, and uh, that's my ground for claiming that I have personality. Not really, actually, if you, if you fall into the idolatry of never leaving your world vision or putting it to the test. So culture there has a particular impact on personality, creates it, but then the personality reacts within the culture by by imprisoning itself within it. Um, but for those who do decide, I will put this set of assumptions to the test and try and pursue wisdom about the world before God, then personality is something that then gets reconfigured. And for him, it's reconfigured by the gospel and like earlier figures in the tradition that I've been mentioning. Um, Jesus himself is the example of a human with a, with a proper worldview, uh, someone who lives as wisdom embodied um, uh, throughout his life. Um, so the, your personality is reshaped by proximity to Christ. Um, and then the gospel becomes the thing that, that kind of deconstructs and reconstructs your, your personality actually. But then personality then is something that then fits, fits in between world vision and worldview as this thing that's being reshaped. And for him, that's a colossally diff difficult thing. I mean, you see it in, the, in this chapter where he writes about how deciding to, for him, actually, you need to become a personality. That's the language that he develops in the book by pursuing wisdom um, rather than a crumpled personality. And becoming a personality is a really hard thing because uh, almost of the risk that you take in asking, well, I'm, I'm going to put all these as those that I've been given by my culture to the test. And what have you found out that some of the things that your culture has told you are, are not the truth and you have to give up on them and then your personality has to be reshaped. Like that, that's a really difficult and therefore noble thing to, to put yourself, uh, set yourself towards, but it's worth doing because it's the pursuit of God. Um, but existentially, it's a really hard thing. Um, but also, it, it's a really difficult thing in that we just don't achieve it in this life. Um, so for him, particularly if you decide to pursue Christian wisdom slash Christian worldview, you enter a community of people who all fail spectacularly at this. And his handling in this book of the disappointment of the church is such helpful reading. Um, because as you decide to enter this process, um, you've got this end goal in mind of wisdom. And then you, you realize that you're part of a community of saints who really suck at that. 
and, uh, and you've got this ideal, but the reality is just colossally disappointing. Um, but you're committed to being part of that. Uh, it's, it's really salutary reading uh, for people in any age, I think, but in our day in the West, it's, it's powerful stuff. So, um, yes? Um, I think I think about this a little bit with Justin's question earlier and where you just went there, um, connected the dots. I'm just curious to see address what this world vision process looks like for people with like different callings in life, mm. like not just the, the philosopher theologians, but yep. just the, the average layperson. Mm. You know, your comment about different catechisms as I've settled into the Lutheran tradition, learning to love Luther's small catechism, mm. where the life of wisdom, the life well lived, mm. is the life for the neighbor. Yep. And it's just a very like concrete, down to earth mm. life for the neighbor. Like, yeah. what, what does this process look like? Mm. Does he address what that looks like for people in various stations of life or in various columns or vocations? Not directly. Um, so the question of vocation comes up um, in, in the first chapter, in this one that was assigned, um, where he uses illustrations from different vocations in life that can be collapsed into world visions and therefore become limiting. Um, you know, so he gives the example of like a racing car driver and a geologist, and um, so people who who have, and he's talking to engineers as well. So they're kind of in there as well. That you could take a vocation in life and collapse it, and uh, and that's real. I mean, that's you know, I work in a large university where I come across people who, uh, regularly who, um, if I say I'm a theologian. Whatever I'm like an economist, or I work in artificial intelligence, and we've got all the answers. Why are you even here with your silly discipline? Um, you come across that all the time, but then you realize that actually a lot of these people who are like world leaders in their advanced fields actually are like that towards every other discipline as well. Uh, so it's not just the theologians who get it. So, um, and the part of the point that he's trying to make there is like what not to do with your vocation, um, and, and limit it into a worldview, and, and you know be the economist who can only think in economic terms, uh, terms or the geologist who, or you know, the poet, like the different vocations that he has here. So I think by implication in the book, there's some kind of redemptive approach to that where you, you wouldn't have to leave those things behind to pursue wisdom. You just think about what you do differently because, so the difference between having a world vision and a world view, another way you could put it in this book is, it would be like, if you spent um, the whole of your life walking the streets of New York City only with your first-person perspective, with a vi literally with vision of the streets, but you had never like, gone to the top of a skyscraper or been in a helicopter or a plane where you had a view of the entire thing, um, that's very different. So for him still, a, a vocation in life starts off as a vision, this immediate thing that you inhabit, but if you, if you, again, it's for this, I guess thinking about that you're part of a community of neighbors, right? So if you don't live to orient your vocation to other people, then you know, you're the person who's always just on the street looking straight ahead without ever having looked down on everything with a, with a view. So it's kind of a, like, I mean, you could also swap worldview for like world vista or something like that, you know, just this grand sweep. And ultimately then you realize for him that, well, God is the one who sees the world like this. And if we want to see the world like him, then um, we have to I, pursue him. Yeah, well, Soren has a question.
Yeah, um, yeah, it is. So that's a superb question. So and the only human who actually has that for a GH Bavink is the incarnate Jesus. Um, so for the rest of us, we have to be a lot more suspicious of the idolatry that runs through all of our hearts. And, um, and even when we develop really sophisticated philosophical systems or worldviews for him, you have to always recognize that you do that as a sinner and that, that, you're, um, that your soul is always going to be disordered. Um, so part of how the, actually part of how, so a, a lot of this book is um, it's kind of a faculty psychology as well that's built into it that like, this is an anthropology for humans that the soul has um, you know different capacities faculties driving forces um, and all humans have the same um, the same kind of makeup for how the, what the soul is and what it can do. Uh, but every human is a distinctly disordered version of that. And actually, when you start to realize that you have a world vision that needs to be put to the test, that's when you first start to kind of shine, the, shine a light into your own soul to work out, okay, so how, how distinctly disordered am I and how, and how the faculties of my soul are exercised in this world? Um, so the, the way that he will think about it, this is where I find it really wise and insightful. Um, so everyone who lives in a certain culture that's shaped by a particular worldview will have traits that are similar across that culture. And the, so like there's a particularly Western way to have a disordered soul for him. There's a distinctly Eastern way to have a disordered soul. So Westerners will all be kind of, they'll be recognizable as a group together. And, there, and then there's a certain disorder of the soul that you have to bear in mind to, you know, uh, to communicate to Westerners. But then every individual Westerner will also have a uniquely disordered version of the Western soul as well. It's really insightful, and then you'll find the same in other parts of the world. So he has a really well-worked-out way of thinking about the disorder, how disordered all of our souls are, depending also on which cultures we're shaped by. Um, but then within that world, there's this one person, the incarnate Son of God, who's, who's the only one who doesn't have a disordered soul. So it's, it's like Plato and Aristotle, but I think he's kind of absorbing their insights, but also trying to trying to refine them and, and give uh, and, and you know put them in service of Christianity. But great question. Very good. Thank yeah. you, Dr. Eggleton. If you enjoy this free audio from the Davenant Institute, please like, subscribe and share. We invite you also to join our email list if you want to hear about upcoming events, new content or course offerings at Davenant Hall. Links are in the description.